And welcome to the show. On this episode of the podcast, we will be discussing everything Michter's. We'll go through the history of the distillery. We'll discuss some current events. And of course, we'll go through our personal favorite aspect of the show, the tastings. With me and we, uh, oh guys, we got a big, big tasting set up for you today. It's a big lineup. Lots of, lots of different types of whiskeys. And of course, you may have just heard his voice. With me, as always, is my brilliant and powerful co-host, Andy Kleshik. Andy how you doing this week? I'm doing fantastic, y'all. Why um, are you having such a good week? So for those that have not heard, in the past week and a half or so, two weeks or so, something that John and I are very definitely excited about. Um, so excited. Yeah. Yeah, we're extremely excited about. The official prequel announcement for Game of Thrones has been announced with HBO. They're going to be coming out. They're starting casting. We don't know everything about it that's going to happen outside of they're starting casting and it's on schedule. Yeah, it's on supposedly on schedule For and 2021 release, 2022 release. 2022 that's release. what I read at least was 2022 release. So they're hopefully fingers crossed we can get some more Game of Thrones in our life to uh, make up for season eight there. Fingers crossed. And honestly, season eight didn't let me down until the very last episode. Yeah. I thought the show was perfect. Honestly, perfect until the last episode. And not even the whole last episode was bad. Just no. parts of it. Just parts, yeah. I think D- Danny dying, I think that made sense. I just think Don- Jon Snow's future, I think Bran being the king, I don't think a lot of that made sense. Um, what do you know so far about this prequel? I don't know. I don't know a heck of a lot about it, but it's going to be... if. What I know is true is going to be based around uh, J.R. or not um, George R. R. Martin's uh, book *Fire and Blood*, basically, which mm. is going to be the three hundred or so ish years before the events that take place in *Game of Thrones*. So it's going to be based primarily around all the Targaryen rule, basically leading up to the um, battle that laid that led Robert Baratheon to becoming king and then the events of Game of Thrones so it's as a series. You think it's literally going to lead up, like when when this series ends, it's going to basically finish off right where Game of Thrones starts or like right before where I get, it, like maybe it, 20, 10 years before Game of Thrones starts, if, something like that? If the rumors are true, it's going to be roughly that same timeline, yeah. Gotcha. Is, at least as that book that he has released on it, Fire and Blood. And there is an actual Fire and Blood book then. Yeah, yeah, there okay. there legitimately is a book that they could base at least you know a few seasons off of. And he released that after the all the original kind of the at, Game of Thrones at, series came out. After the first five books, but prior to the last two. Gotcha. So there's like five of seven of, in the Game of in the Song of Ice and Fire series out. Gotcha. And he's then he released Fire and Blood. Andy, so, that yeah. smells to me like a whole brand new podcast. It's, it might have to be yeah, a new we podcast. Might, we might have to do it in a company podcast like we did with, I don't know if you guys are our longtime Axiom fans. We kind of wrapped up, we've heard it both ways, with a long series of Game of Thrones uh, podcasts that kinda. went along kind of analyzing the first few seasons, the last, uh, and then every episode of the last season. Yeah, yeah, they, you, we did that. What about a year and a half, two years ago? Right when uh, we recorded it, I think we recorded it right before and during the final season. Yeah, yeah, it was around that time. Yeah, we did season had re- a lot of fun. We did season recaps, and then like we literally dove right in to doing uh, podcasts for each and every episode. Yeah, of the final season. Yeah, so I think that's something we're probably gonna have to do for mm-hmm. the news, the news, the news show. The news <laughs> I, I, th- I, th- I think we'll have to do that if. Uh, 
COVID and all this stuff doesn't stop it. Doesn't yeah. continue and stop it and everything. Yeah. So that'll be exciting to have a new uh, a new show, a new Game of Thrones coming out. I think people could really mm-hmm. use that right now. A show I've been watching a lot lately is called Billions. Andy. Ties a lot it, into our uh, bourbon. It ties a lot into our episode today. I've been watching Billions like crazy. I've been watching it since day one when it came out. Season five, I believe, just premiered a couple months ago. And I haven't started the new season yet because I'm waiting to watch it with my girlfriend. But I just finished re-watching the entire series. Gotta catch literally, up, man. Literally last night. And uh, Billions, it's about a hedge fund manager. He kind of like pushes the boundaries, makes a lot of money, uh, makes some enemies, and he's going back and forth with with uh, the FBI and some uh, some federal prosecutors there, yeah, specifically in the New York City area. But something that really, you know, the show's great, high intensity. Uh, it's like, it reminds me a lot of Suits. Think of Suits, but with the uh, you know that that HBO Showtime edge, and it's got. Um, uh, you know, it has a lot. It's actually a little more intense than those shows because it's got that edge. Uh, yeah. But it, it, but it's very similar, a little more modern. Uh, and you know, it's great. I love the I love the dynamics. Dynamics. I love the characters. If you liked Homeland or you like any of these Showtime shows, you're gonna love it. Um, but not only is the show great, one of the things they do in the show is they drink some pretty expensive, nice bourbon. <laughs> it. Brings us to the topic of actually one of the bourbons that they drink into our episode today. Absolutely. And Andy, I'm telling you, regularly, across the board, all of the brands they offer, they drink Michters exclusively on the show. And they drink all the different types of Michters. Yeah. Speaking of which, I'm going to actually pour us a couple glasses of the Michters bourbon. Guys, we'll be having a more official tasting later on in the show, but right now Andy and I want to be having some some we're going to want some libations yeah. while we're while we're recording talking to you guys about the history of Michters. And uh, so we're going to pour ourselves some of, of this this uh, Michters small batch Kentucky straight bourbon whiskey. Uh, of course you can drink whatever you want, but I would highly recommend you uh, pour yourself some of this while we uh, go through the show. So Andy Tell the folks a little bit of what they need to know about yeah. Michters. So, yeah, it's definitely. I mean, while John's pouring us up some stuff, um, we've got a pretty full episode for today because we have a few different products from Michters to try out. But before we get to trying and doing all that stuff, basic hist- history of Michters, at least as we know it today, started around the 1950s to 1960s. Um, they started out really... Like, the name of Michter started out well into the 18th century, like the mid-1750s, actually. So, by by technicality, the name Michter's Bourbon is older than America itself. Right. But Michter's Distillery, as, as I just said, as we know it today, is only about 70, 80 years old. Right. So, it's funny, we talked about this. It seems like we've, we've done some research. we talked to some experts. It seems like no one can precisely, exactly trace the source of Michter's actual bourbon with complete and total transparency from the brand itself. It, we, yeah. It's kind of hard to find the exact date of when the bourbon was originally started to be produced. Yeah. Now, we know that uh, you know when, when the distillery, the original distillery that they have kind of a connection, a weird uh, distant connection with, we're going to break yeah. it all down, get all into it. We have a general area, um, but it seems like even you know us and other experts have had difficulty nailing down an exact date of when production started. Of course, yeah. Um, that I mean, that's something that, yeah, it's not, as John was just kind of saying, it's something that they didn't necessarily have. They've kind of had a non-linear history if you will as far as the name goes at least um the reason being is that 
the name Michters started out probably, like as, as I said, around the 1750s, 1760s, when uh, the Shanks Whiskey Distillery, all the way back in Pennsylvania, uh, trademarked the name or something to that effect well before America started, or was formerly known as America. And then it, eventually, and then it was later renamed the Bombers Distillery in the mid-1800s, before kind of being slowly phased out a little bit or shut down for a while. Um, and then especially, obviously, Prohibition. They were a brand that was not operating during Prohibition. But then in about the, as I said, the mid-50s or 60s, 1950s or 60s, is when Michter's Distillery and Michter's brand, as we know it today, uh, both in Louisville and their, I think they have one other location that they actually do some distilling on. Because they just opened their location in Louisville, Kentucky, um, in 2018 or 2019. Yeah. So it's interesting. It has a... it's. It has a long, Sorry. rich, and kind of uh, uncertain history. The uh, yeah. it started the actual like modern day mixers that everyone knows started like the mixers that you can buy today. It started in Louisville, Kentucky, but really the brand was previously born and also died in Pennsylvania, and yeah. then it was born again in Kentucky. It really is a born again bourbon, Andy. Oh, a little bit, if you will, yeah. So yeah, I mean, it you could say that. I'd agree with that. Yeah, so the complex there in Pennsylvania, it actually represented the transformation of whiskey distilling from an agricultural enterprise into a, you know, more of a, like a large scale industry where it's like, we're not just doing this as a part of agriculture, as part of farming, where we're, we're gonna also going to make whiskey, we're turning this into a real business. Uh, the surviving stillhouse and warehouse and uh, actually jug house there in that Pennsylvania location date back to, uh, I should say, date from about 1840. But the site was also documented as a, uh, as a you know, has a history of spirit production since 1753, like you mentioned previously. Uh, Bomberger's was listed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1975 and was actually declared a National Historic Landmark in 1980. Uh, but the facility was America's actually smallest commercial distiller at the time uh, of its 1989 closure. So like I said, we kind of born and died in Pennsylvania. It was born and the product was starting to be made there in Pennsylvania, uh, but it actually closed down uh, there as well. And we had to move on from it a little bit. Yeah, that that's kind of, that death is really where Michter's as we know it today in their Kentucky locations. Um, right. They have, they have, as I was mentioning earlier, they have one location in Louisville and then they have another um in Shively now, that's really where they were born. I have a question for you, Andy, because the, you know, especially based on some of our previous uh, bourbon podcasts, the Bomberger's Distillery, more, of course, recently known as Michter's, is actually a non-operating distillery facility that was at the end of the 20th century, at the end of the 20th century, believed to be the oldest remaining such building in the U.S. The distillery closed, like I said, 1989, kind of signaling the death of Michter's there in Pennsylvania, although there are whiskey products currently on the market still using the Bombergers and Michter's brand names. We're drinking them today. Um, They are more recently, of course, introduced, uh, but they still have that direct connection. uh, I should say no direct connection to that old distillery other than just kind of innuendo the the, literally the brief connections that we've been discussing so far. Um, but they claim that it was the uh, oldest remaining such building in the U.S. I thought the oldest, I, I was it, uh, I thought Makers had the 
Was it the oldest I think, I operating? Think, I think Makers, to answer your question, if I'm understanding it right, I think Makers had the longest continuously operating. That's what it was. Okay. I, I think, um, or in some sense, continuously operating in their Loretta location. This but is the longest... I think this is the oldest non-operating. Yeah, this might be the oldest non-operating. Gotcha. If if I have my history correct on them. Right. On Michter's as a brand, Bombergers, Shanks Distillery, all their different names. Um, right. They might be the oldest non-operating one. Because as I was saying, they like their actual distillation back in Pennsylvania, at least as far as I could find, was back all the way to about... The mid 1750s. Yeah, the bottles literally say 1753, and you know it's interesting because Michter's is a is a newer brand as far as the Michter's we currently know. But yeah. they put that 1753 on there uh, for a specific reason. I, I'd like to dive in a little bit to the, the history. It is I know it's a little dense. That there's a lot of it here, um, but I would like to just you know bear with me. Let me run through it real quickly because that 1753 number is a signifier of when John and Michael Schenk. Uh, they were actually men, uh, Mennonite farmers began distilling rye whiskey at their site there in Pennsylvania, the site that we were just discussing. Mm-hmm. And of course, it's interesting that the rye is the easiest product of the of the mixers to, to obtain, and it's maybe because they, they produce more of the rye. That yeah. you know, the rye was actually the first one that they were they were producing there. And it's actually you know it was one of the earliest local American whiskeys with rye uh, built for, you know actually used from their own grain fields. Uh, to to ever be produced in the U.S. Uh, right there in Schaeferstown, Eastern Pennsylvania. One of the, my most favorite tidbits about the brand is that ju- it's rumored, at least, that George Washington uh, he actually purchased whiskey from Shank there in uh, in Schaeferstown, Pennsylvania, in the winter of 1778 to warm up his troops stationed at Valley Forge. Yeah, well, I mean, again, kind of as we were talking about during uh, our previous episode last week um you know again another american tidbit there oh yeah but that i mean that's something that definitely you know if the rumors and everything are true that they date back to about the 1750s would date correctly and then also you know to your point about the rye the rye like their rise i mean that would represent that's the longest running strain for them or um line for them at and among any distillery ever because most American whiskeys up until really very, very recently, and recently in bourbon history, meaning probably 1900s-ish, early to mid-1900s, most American whiskeys were rye whiskeys. Yeah, okay. Because that was the easiest grain to find. It was not corn. Really, gotcha. until you got into Kentucky, Indiana, you know, a lot of the Midwest, when you could mm. do corn and make bourbon, as we know it today, at least. But yeah, I mean, that's... You know, kind of circling back to your point there, that's something that if that's true as far as George Washington buying it, again, just huge American selling point for them. Right, of course. And the the, the Michter's American whiskey actually has a red, white, and blue label. Yeah. Um, clearly trying to take advantage of those alleged, at least, uh, connections to old American history. Uh, just a couple other uh, tidbits on the history of the brand in general. John Schenck's son-in-law, uh, Rudolf Meyer, acquired the distillery, uh, and another relative, John Kreitzer, ran the business from 1827 
Till about 1860, several of the buildings um, actually is still available and still in use date back to uh, Cranster's uh, tenure there. About 1860, Abraham uh, Bomberger, a Pennsylvania Dutchman who had ties to Shank's family, purchased the distillery from the Krasner family with prohibition. The distillery actually closed in 1919. Uh, We've talked about some of the the bourbons previously that were able to operate during prohibition. Lictor's, unfortunately, was not one of them. Uh, then uh, the, the distillery was bought in 1920, but it did not operate actually uh, until 1934 after Prohibition had ended, where then it then sold to Louis Foreman in 1942. Foreman actually sold the distillery soon after he was drafted for service for World War II. Again, just shows all the kind of historical and American connections to this brand. Uh, but then repurchased it in 1950 after uh, after two other owners. Of course, one of these other owners was Shinley Distilleries. Foreman and his uh, Foreman and his uh, master distiller at the time, Charles Everett Beam. Yes, from that Beam family, the Beam family that we've all known, grown to love. Uh, actually designed a premium old-fashioned pot still mash whiskey. They named Michter's original sour mash whiskey after Foreman's son Michael, Michael and Peter. So this. Um, this foreman guy here who uh, who bought who bought it right after you know bought it after right after prohibition and then had to go to world war ii and then rebought it pretty interesting story there he actually named the bourbon or the, the brand michter after paul or i should say michael and peter michael peter michter uh, and then in 1951 foreman distilled the first batch of michters but by that time it had pretty much aged um, the required six years you know we can discuss whether that's really necessary or not for six years um, a recession prevented him from selling at the time. The distillery was acquired yeah. by Penco Distillers, while Foreman kept the formula and the aged whiskey. Uh, Penco then used the facility for contract distilling until 1978, and Foreman distributed Michter's whiskey through his liquor wholesaling business. About 1970, late 70s, uh, Foreman and his Lebanon County backers organized the Michter's Distillery, Inc., which bought the distillery at the foreclosing uh, sale of Pinco, Michter's, and then uh, I should say Michter's and the distillery finally closed in 1989, filing bankruptcy there in Pennsylvania, which is really where, uh, it, like I said, it died. It was born and died in Pennsylvania, and then later be, ha- on had to be reborn. Um, yeah. And then, you know, their, their legacy, they, they kind of they launched that legacy series there, uh, and, and that Michter's uh, name really was retired at the PA distillery uh, like in the 1990s, and uh, you know it kind of moved on to that new life there in Kentucky. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, as you were saying, died in about eighty, late 80s or 89, uh, and about early 90s. Kind of following up with that is really when they, I forget who the master distiller who bought it at the time, but they bought it, trade they bought the trademarks to the Mictor's name and everything, and opened up. Michter's what is now Michter's distillery in Kentucky so the main location for actual all distillation now is in Chevrolet Kentucky gotcha and then they also have a location down on Main Street in Louisville downtown Louisville downtown Louisville Kentucky it's hard to it's hard to get a picture of the Chevrolet location I, I you, couldn't find one yeah it's hard to find one if you google just Michter's distillery uh, most likely you're going to get that one in downtown kind of an old historic looking building Small operation there. But again, that's because that's not really where they do most of their distillery no. and storage. No, definitely not. I mean, that, that I when I was down in Louisville uh, last year in 2019, actually, uh, I, entered, I entered into it just for a little bit just to look. I didn't actually do a tour or anything down there. It, it's, it's a nice-looking building and everything. I think that looks like 
though that's more their kind of gift shop touristy right. location. Yeah. Intended to be that. But whatever the case, they have both of those locations for them. Um, and it's something that they, you know, try to have, I think try to have all their uh, tourists come through, look at both, if I remember correctly. But along with that, that they're the unofficial uh, start of the bourbon trail in Kentucky. Right. I mean, it, you know, technically you can start at any distillery you want, but if you really want to start at the quote-unquote start, supposedly you're supposed to start at Mechter's. Right, that is the start down in there in downtown uh, Louisville, that location they really only opened up in 2019. And it's and of course, the company is now owned by Chatham Imports, Imports Inc. <clears throat> and actually, of course. the name was revived thanks to the joint efforts of the bourbon lovers. Joe, I'm going to butcher this name. I'm going to butcher his name, Makaliko. Uh, I literally don't know how to pronounce it. I apologize. Um, I'm sure people are screaming into their, their, their headphones and their phones right now. Uh, and Dick Newman of Chatham Imports, they they bought the brand name in 1997. Victor started doing their own distilling in Kentucky proper 2015. Previously, the early 2000s, Victor had whiskeys being made to their specifications in Kentucky by other distilleries, but they and then you know they were they did some experimenting, did uh, some uh, you know some messing around at their own place there in Shively in 2014, but the final uh, Michter's Kentucky made product was actually started coming out in 2015. Yeah, definitely. Um, and that that kind of leads a little bit into segue. I think kind of what we would want to next discuss, uh, which is their process of what, really what they do. And their unofficial slogan for that is costs be damned. <laughs> as, at least as they like to say it, as their website says it, costs be damned. And uh, why is that there? <laughs> so as far as I could find of that from both them and then other sources and everything is that uh, really they want to try and sit here and have the best quality product that can that they can provide no matter how they have to make it. So, and they're a little bit different than most other brands on the market. So they, um, first and foremost, I think I should get into the mash bill, mash bill before I get into anything more in their process. So their mash bill is 79% corn, 11% rye, and 10% malted barley. So a little bit higher on the corn than most other brands very on the high. market. Yeah. Uh, definitely very high comparatively. But then they also do kind of a two-stage process on their barrels as well, where they um, first toast the barrels and then they char the barrels. So what that'll do is in toasting, that'll open up a little bit more of the pores of the oak to allow for some of those flavors to be extracted more easily from the wood. And then the charring allows it to retain those flavors while at the same time giving the color and they're a little bit longer aged of a bourbon they're an eight-year-old bourbon so a little bit older end uh not quite as old as knob creek as we tried last week but yeah, on the older the, end at the nine range, yeah, yeah exactly and so fairly old but not quite super old but then they also they enter the entry proof of all their bourbons into the barrels is 103 proof comparatively to most other bourbons on the market, which will enter around 100, 125 proof. 
125, 62.5% alcohol by volume being the most you're legally allowed to have a bourbon or American whiskey enter a barrel. Okay. In the U.S. by federal regulations. So they they enter it a little bit lower to try, at least as I understand it, to try and give a little bit more flavor there. But at the same time, while it will result in a lower yield per barrel, it will also lead to slightly, if I'm correct in this, slightly quicker maturation because they'll add a little bit more water in to kind of cut it down to the 103, which will help dissolve some of the um, wood tannins and everything from the oak to help it get the flavors and everything that they really want in the bourbon. Gotcha. So, which I think is really interesting. That's, like I said, that's not something that most brands do to their bourbons to try and get it to be as quality of a product as they do. And it's something that, you know, it costs a lot more to do all of that as a result because you have to have a lot more barrels to yield the same amount as some of these other brands do. Okay. So they kind of hearkening back to that cost be damned they want to try and make all around a really great product no matter how they have to make it now also something they do they do chill filtration i don't know of many other bourbon brands at least that do chill filtration try and get some of the sediment and everything out i haven't and, heard of any at least as far as the ones we've done we've recorded yeah, and talked about yet. so far i haven't heard yeah of i don't i haven't publicly heard of any so of that's those pretty brands. unique there yeah and then they also heat cycle the barrels. Uh, something, it's similar process to what Maker's Mark does, but not exactly the same process. So Maker's Mark, if you remember, what they'll do is they'll cycle their barrels, you know, from the top of the warehouse down to the bottom, back up, right. et cetera, et cetera. Mictors, to try and get that same heat cycling, to get some of the same maturation effects at least, takes that logic but kind of twists it a different way. And what they do is when I was doing my research on it, at least what they do is they, um, they're like super heat. I think during like fall, winter to early spring, they super, they'll like super heat up their warehouses, their aging warehouses where they have the barrels just aging to try and get the, uh, bourbon into the wood. And then they open all the windows to the warehouses, which kind of brings in all the cold air, forces it back into um, the barrels, out, out of the wood, into the void of the internal bar- wow. internals of the barrel to try and get at least some of the same effect yeah. that someone like Maker's Mark tries to do. And I think it creates just as good of a product, right. if you ask me. Better if maybe. Yeah. That's awesome. They also, uh, yeah, that's very unique in their uh, distillation process. And, uh, like, yeah, honestly, I think cost be damned is a pretty fitting uh, term for how they operate there. Oh, definitely. It's also not just unique in their process, but in the influences they've had. Actually, in 2016, Pam uh, Heelman became the first female master distiller at a Kentucky Distillers Association distillery since Prohibition. So there's actually been a pretty significant female influence on this brand. And while she actually recently handed over the reins to Dan McKee, who of course is not a woman, uh, she basically has been, um, you know, she brought someone, she brought Dan with her over to Michter's, so he is obviously influenced by her. Um, she still has a more flexible role as master distiller um, 
uh, em- emeritus, if you will. She is still involved in the process. She's just not actually the master distiller. Anymore. She just kind of is overseeing the master distiller, if you will. And at the same time, the master of matura- uh, maturation, Andrea Wilson, is still running the barrel side of things. Um, she has, of course, an obsession with barrel science, and she has a Kentucky moonshiner as a grandfather. Um, I, you know, she, They have legit female street cred when it comes to the bourbon industry and very few i think bourbons are doing more in line with the, you know the no. women being involved in the process than mictors definitely not no and i i agree when um i think it was pam and you said she came over like she was they actually in their process of trying to find her as master distiller what they did is like they asked like a whole bunch of people in the industry and everything you know to sit there and try and figure out like listen who should we hire as our person to bring on to be Master Distiller. And there was like three or four names, and she was the one that was consistently, time after time, among all these other industry experts, was like, hire her, hire her. She knows what she's doing. And I think, I don't know if you agree with me, John. I mean, clearly the product reflects. She knows what she's doing. <laughs> she, she absolutely does. There's a lot of great products that Mictors makes, and it's not just their bourbon. You know, they Mictors has straight bourbon and straight rye. The the bourbon is, of course, kind of a more recent type product, and the rye has been around yeah. arguably for hundreds of years. You know, if, you know, we're not we have already obviously have already covered some of those details. Both are labeled though as no with no age statements, uh, meaning they're at least four years old, and some are even ten years old. Um, some are, of course, even a quarter century old. There's all kinds of different Mictors products out there. Um, there's also the U.S. Uh, the U.S. One unblended American whiskey that we're going to talk about a little more in the future uh, here in the show. A product that says it is aged in a way that utilizes whiskey-soaked barrels to achieve a rich and unique flavor profile. Um, but it's nice to see. You know, one of the interesting things about Mictors is that it's kind of a it's a premium. It's definitely a premium bourbon. But there's also like premium, premium, premium Mictors products. You can buy Mictors for $40 or you can buy Mictors for $4,000. And a lot of it depends on the process. You've got, you know, you got the Mictors bourbon, you, you know, you got the rye, but then you also have rye that's been aged 25 years that's going for $2,500 a bottle. It just kind of depends on, uh, you know, it's nice that it has, it's a premium level bourbon, but it's, you know, you got people who like me and you who can afford it. And you've got billionaires, like people who in billions to buy it. who are literally buying this and drinking it because even though like the base level is quality and great quality, but you have 25 year age bourbon there that is just unbelievable. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with you. I mean, unfortunately, I have not been able to find nor probably could I afford to try any of like their 20 or 25 year olds. Um, bottles. So if any listeners want to sit here and send us a bottle, definitely feel free to, if you can afford it. <laughs> Please do. Don't, don't go bankrupt trying to fund us or anything. <laughs> um, but it's something that I definitely agree with you. I mean, all up and down the line of what they offer, you know, is a product that anyone can afford and anyone can enjoy and love. I think genuinely love. Right. And you get, and like I said, you, there's such a wide variety of ages, such a wide variety of prices. It's hard to go wrong with what uh, Mictors is offering. Yeah, no, you're definitely right, John. I mean, they have a quite a wide variety of options. Um, the standard ones that they offer, there's four fairly standard ones they offer. It's a straight rye, there's straight bourbon, and then there are just regular American whiskey and sour mash. Those, I think, at least in the Cincinnati area here that we can find, we retail for probably about high 30s low to mid 40s depending on where you go 
And then they've also had a few limited productions. Um, I would real quick. I'm sorry to cut you off. I would just say the rye is really like accessible, at least in the Cincinnati, Kentucky area. Yeah, it's probably the rye the- is very accessible. The bourbon in the in the American whiskey are much more difficult to find. Yeah, I I, I definitely agree with that. I think the I think that the uh, rye, their single barrel or small batch rye, is probably the most accessible that yeah. you're going to find anywhere. Right. But you might be able to find some of their other standard offerings. Yeah, elsewhere. like the bourbon, the American are very accessible. Like you can get them if you if you want, but you're probably gonna have to drive further than your local liquor store. You're probably gonna have to do some hunting. You're probably gonna have to deal with some, some crowds. But you can definitely find it if you want to. It's mm-hmm. just not nearly as easy as to, to find as most of your typical standard alcohols. Even at, you know, even with the the even as easy as the rye is to find. Yeah. No. Definitely. Definitely. No. I'd agree with that. And they're all definitely worth the hunt to try and find if you want to hunt for them. Oh, yeah, for sure. And then they also have some limited releases um, or limited productions across the years. They have 10, 20, and 25 years. The 10 and 25 years both have the rye and the bourbon. And the 20-year is only their bourbon. I actually have a, you know, I just started at this this new position, this new new company, and one of the guys, uh, Jeremy, I'm hoping to have him on the podcast eventually if we start bringing guests on. He just told me on, I think it was Monday of last week, that over the weekend he had a chance to taste the uh, the 20 year bourbon of Michter's. What did he say? He said it was delicious. It was amazing. He loved it. But for a two ounce pour, it was $87. Oh, jeez. And he thought it's very hard to find. It's very hard to find. He thought about buying a bottle, but the bottle was like $2,500 for the bottle. And he was like, I can't, I cannot, (laughs) right? I cannot, I cannot rationalize spending $2,500 on a bottle of bourbon, at least at this time in my life. (laughs) No, I I definitely agree with him. There and I, I trust them. I mean, that's even more right. than the. That's shoot. That's even more than I had the chance to try at a, at a local restaurant here in Cincinnati. Pappy, fifteen year. I want to say for seventy. Oh, wow. that's even more expensive than that. Jesus. Yeah. And think about how like how rare Pappy is. And I think he was down in Kentucky too when he when he tasted wow. it. Wow. Yeah, it was pricey. But uh, that's the thing. It's like Victor's has like you have billionaires drinking Victor's and you have people like me and you. Yeah. You know, everyday kind of Joes as far as. Uh, you know what we're drinking also able to drink mictors and that's one of the things that makes it more uh, it makes it stand out for sure yeah definitely and speaking of standing out they've gotten a lot of accolades over the years too um you know they've had recently um they were named winners of the best bourbons um for jim um murray's whiskey bible in 2021 for both their single barrel 10 year old kentucky street bourbon and then also their um it, well, within the 10 to 12-year-old category and their uh, 20-year-old straight bourbon. And before I go any further, uh, John, I don't know if you've heard the news about Jim Murray. First off, we denounce anything that he said in the past because he's had a few sexist comments. I've not com- heard like, what com- he said. Yeah. I will not comment on any of it. Yeah, <laughs> but he's... Um, I have not specifically heard them myself, but I've heard from other sources that he's had some very choice language comparing bourbons as a, and whiskeys as a whole to uh women in various like in various different forms comparing saying how he would have sex with them and everything we do not condone that language at all that's nope. unacceptable <laughs> but just as a note on the accolades that they've had um and then they've also had their rise on that list as well for 2021 under the uh single barrel straight rye 10 year old and then there's celebration sour mash uh, whiskey release number three. 
So those are some, like, in the t- most recent couple of years, the accolades that they've gotten. Which I think brings us about to the favorite part that we have of the episode. Oh, Andy, it's time. Yeah. It's time and, for the taste ends. Yeah. Folks, we're going to taste the, we're going to take the, we're going to do a several tastings here with Michter's. Uh, we're going to do a tasting of the Michter's Small Batch Kentucky Stroyed Bourbon Whiskey. That's what we're going to do first. Then we're going to do a tasting of the Michter's Single Barrel Kentucky Straight Rye Whiskey. And then we're going to do a third tasting, our first ever episode with three tastings. I think Michter's is very appropriate for it. We're going to do our third Definitely. tasting of Michter's Small Batch Unblended American Whiskey. We're, again, we're going to start off with the bourbon, then we're going to do the rye, and then we're going to the American. So let's go ahead and start with the bourbon. All right, Andy. So let's start off with an and everyone out there, of course. Per your pour your Michter's bourbon and get a big sniff of that bad boy. I definitely get a very brown sugar caramel nose to the front of it. It's very light. It's very um, very welcoming, very mm-hmm. pleasant. I I can taste. I, I I should say I can smell the corn a little bit. Oh, a little bit. Yeah, you'll t- typically get a little bit sweeter with the corn. I can get the I can get the sweetness of the corn. I get a little oak feeling. It's it's not it's not bad at all. Let's let, let's taste it. Let's do it. Let, let's get a little tasting. Very good. Ooh, that's good. Um, it's very sweet. You get that corn. Sweetness. Yeah, you definitely get a very very sweet note. I get a big vanilla a big vanilla taste and. You know, the bourbon, the Michter's is it's kind of controversial because it gets a lot of haters who are saying it's too smooth, it's too clean, it's too vanilla-y. I don't think, I don't think a hard liquor, Andy, can be too, too smooth. I don't you, think it can You know be. what the bourbon reminds me of? What's that? If you stuck like pure vanilla into iced coffee. Hmm. That's what coffee it reminds vanilla. me of. Coffee, coffee vanilla uh, taste. The, the, the finish is oaky, peppery, uh, but you still get a little of that sweetness along with the pepperiness. Mm-hmm. Honestly, it's a really good balance. It's a really, really mm-hmm. good bourbon. Um, I, I believe, what was her name? Uh, Amy. Uh, trying to pull her name back up. I apologize. I don't have it off the top of my head. Pam there. Uh, she really knew what she was doing. Uh, and, you know, we were talking earlier. Does she, you know, does she know her talents? Yeah, everyone wanted to hire her for good reason. The bourbon yeah. is exceptional. There's no doubt about that. No. I, I think especially if you're looking at that 40 Dollar range. There's very few that I would place above Michter's. Definitely not. Let's okay, guys. Let's jump right on into the Michter Single Barrel Kentucky Straight Rye. All right, guys. Now that we tasted the Michter's Small Batch Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey, we are going to graduate over to the Michter's Single Barrel Kentucky Straight Rye Whiskey, which honestly, as we've discussed already in the show, is the more accessible kind of, there's almost standard brander, you know, you know, whiskey, if you will. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with you. I think that, at least in the Cincinnati area, I probably, tri-state area here, Cincinnati, southeastern Indiana, northeast, or north, northern Kentucky area, probably the most accessible of their lineup that you can find. You can still find more, but most accessible. Absolutely. Cheers, sir. We'll start Cheers. off with, we should we'll start off with the nose real quick and we'll go to the palate and the finish. I get a little bit of like almost like a balsamic vinaigrette flavor on there in the nose. Um to me Citru- like a citrusy. Like, yeah, like a little bit of citrusy, uh kind of like I was saying like a fruity, citrusy, yeah, dark like you, dark fruit. Yeah, like darker fruits maybe in there. 
But like to me, it really is a lot more of that balsamic brown sugar smell in there. Like if you aged it in a bourbon barrel. Yeah, I get that brown sugar mixed with the kind of the vanilla a lot. And yeah. we're still getting that. Yeah, it is a Victor's is a very vanilla-y. Uh, bourbon and, and whiskey, but I don't necessarily have a problem with that. I'm also getting the hint, a hint of oak as well. Uh, let's go ahead and uh, let's uh, sample the, this it. bad boy. It's a lot smoother of rye than most that I've tasted in my life. I don't know about you, John, but... It's a good rye. Great yeah. rye. I want to say it's slightly smoother than the bourbon. Um, I don't know the alcohol comparisons. Let's see. The bourbon. They're both. Bourbon clock in it. 45.7. 91.4 proof. I want to the, say they're about the same. The rye is clocking in at a 42.4. 84.4 proof. So it makes sense that the, the rye is a little slightly smoother, I think. But you yeah. get that. You really get that rye spicy kick right off the bat with the rye. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree with that. With Michter's, again, you're going to get that. You, we got the vanilla smell. We got the vanilla taste on the bourbon. You're getting vanilla on both with this rye as well, I think. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Any other flavors? Oh, a lot of oak still, yeah. Yeah, a lot, lot of, like, you definitely get that very vanilla, like a vanilla orange lingering flavor for me, at least, in there. A little bit of, like I was saying, still kind of a little bit of, like, if you added like some balsamic in there, but like aged that with vanilla and orange in a bourbon barrel. A lot of people talk about like a butterscotch type uh, taste to to it. I don't. I really don't get that. I don't get it. The candy corn butterscotch. I don't know, man. I don't get it. I get the I get the oak. I get the vanilla. I get the that rye that rye spice, but I don't I don't get it. I don't get the butterscotch. Maybe it just takes an acquired taste to. Pull out more of those flavors. I think it's a medium. I think it's a medium strong finish. It's a it's a good finish. It's not anything overpowering. Again, just a lot of spice, a lot of vanilla with that finish. Yeah. There. It no matter what it is, is a good finish. Right. Another, uh, you know, again, like the bourbon is like at this price at this price point for a bourbon. This is a, as I think taste wise as good a quality, good of history as you're gonna get. And I think the same is as absolutely true for the rye. Hmm. Alrighty, folks, on to our third and final tasting of the Michter's episode. We've got now Michter's Small Batch Unblended American Whiskey. It's clocking in at 41.7% alcohol by volume, which is, of course is 83.4 proof. Andy, before we taste this, I don't want to, honestly, I don't want to bias your opinion, but, the, and please, please give me your honest opinion, and I, I think the, the listeners would approve. This is one of my favorite uh, whiskeys in general. I haven't tried the Amer- their American whiskey yet. I don't think. I've only tried their rye and their bourbon. Oh, wow. So I, I don't know. I can't honestly say what they're going in. Mm-hmm. You're going in. I'm going in blind. Of course. And, of course, this, this, has, the, this has the blue, the red, white, and blue label. They this I think this specific whiskey is trying to... Harken back even more so to that alleged George Washington history, whether it happened or not. They're trying to really yeah. emphasize that, uh, and I just think it is a a very quality uh, whiskey, uh, especially at this price point. I'm, you know, I really do want your honest opinion. I love it for multiple reasons, and I'm, I'm curious what you think. Um, so uh, let's let's dive right in. Let's uh, start with the nose here. All right. 
got a little sharp. It's got a little, it's a little bit to more it. hot, a little bit more alcohol front flavor. Yeah. In the smell there. Definitely some sharpness to it up front. Oh, that's smooth, Andy. That's smooth. What are your thoughts? What are your thoughts? Smooth. It's a typical American whiskey. Reminds me, to be honest with you, reminds me of a few other brands, to be honest with you. But it's it's good. What does it remind you of? Reminds me a little bit of Wild Turkey. Reminds me a little bit of Tin Cup. Okay. Uh, American whiskeys. Uh, in my experience. I just Not think, in a bad way. I just think at it's all. such I think it's such a smooth such a smooth whiskey. Uh, and I think honestly a lot of people don't like that. A lot, especially bourbonites. They really don't like they don't like smooth. They want more of taste, more burn, more oak, more uh, smokiness. But I do. I'm someone who I do appreciate uh, appreciate smoothness. I, you know, I, I grew up, or you know, my I should say my, my you know when it comes to my alcohol tasting, I grew up on Scotch, very much a, a smooth type of uh, tasting preference. And I think it's a very very smooth bur- alcohol. Well, Scotch, depending on which region you go to, at least. Well, you got to go to the right ones. We all know that. <laughs> Don't worry, folks. We're going to get into our Scotch flavors uh, and our, our, our Scotch preferences a little bit down the road. We're not just sticking to bourbon solely. Yeah. But I just, um, I really do love it. What are some of the, grab another ta- grab another mouthful there, guys. What are, what are some of the other tastes we're getting out of this, this whiskey here? What else are you getting out of it, Andy? Mm, sweet, spicy, sweet, spicy. It's like the Sour Patch Kids of whiskey, Andy. <laughs> it's definitely sweet. It's got the Big. Van- that strong Michter's vanilla. A little bit of that vanilla up front. It reminds me of a little bit like a slightly burnt or over toasted marshmallow. Okay, yeah, a little bit there. Yeah, to me, the, the yeah the uh, the oaky sweetness. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's, I like my marshmallows burnt too. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with that. No, <laughs> I mean, I mean, I mean, it's, it's a good product. I don't hate it. It's just, it's, I, I feel of, like you of, hate, of, I feel like of, you hate right now, of, Andy. Of all their products I, that I've had the chance to try, I like their rye and then their bourbon and then this, oh, to be honest with you. We're the complete opposite. I will, I like this above all, but that's why I appreciate your honesty because, mm-hmm. You know, everyone does have their preferences. It's not, yeah. it's not a bourbon. It's definitely not a bourbon. Yeah. But it, it, I mean, no, you're definitely right in that. And it, I mean, for me, it's something that of all the mixers that I've tried, the rye is the most freaking I've tried. So that's what I've grown used to. That's what of I course. like. And that makes sense. And there's nothing wrong with that, of as course, we've yeah. said previously in in this show. Yeah, whiskey is the whiskey is best enjoyed the way you like to enjoy it. True. Which, preferably, above all, responsibly. <laughs> of course. Uh, again, lots of uh, vanilla, uh, caramel, a little bit of oak there. It really is sweet at the, the top. Heart, uh, I should say sharp, spicy finish. And that's what I like. I like sweet, easing ease into it, and then just a mm, sharp finish yeah. at the end. Honestly, I, I've tried. if we're talking whiskeys under $50 a bottle, this is probably my second favorite whiskey. As far as smoothness, taste, affordability, 
it, my second favorite. We'll get What's into your first. We'll get into that a little bit later. We'll, we'll, I'm not gonna. It, uh, there's you know there might be some uh, some bending of the knee might be required. We'll might get, be another show. We'll get into that show a little bit later. Andy already knows it, and so cl- people close to me know it. And, and uh, there might you some people might need to bend the knee in order to. Uh, taste this whiskey but uh we're gonna get into that a little bit later but i just love this whiskey i love that it's american whiskey i love that i love the taste and uh i know you're not completely sold on it i kind of had a feeling you weren't gonna be crazy about it not completely but it's good i'm not saying it's bad it's good guys don't andy he can he's a he's a respectable voice in the the bourbon industry but this isn't bourbon this is american whiskey trust me this is a high quality product and and honestly it's not easy to get your hands on so if you can get one uh go for it do it all right andy i thought make the mictors episode was incredible i love their product do you have any final thoughts on mictors uh i i think the final thought i'd have to say on mictors is that by far, of most bourbon brands that I've tried to date, they might be in my top three favorite bourbon brands, just and just American whiskey brands as a whole. Who would you put them on that that tier, that level with? I'd say Wild Turkey, Four Roses. They might be fighting for my top three spots there. I thought you would. To, I, honestly, I thought you were going to go more Buffalo Trace. Huh? The Buffalo Trace route. Oh. I'll explain in a little ep- in another episode why I might defer okay. on some uh, my rankings. Okay, we're gonna get some rankings out of you, some definitive eventually Andy rankings. We're gonna get those eventually. You'll get them out of me. We will. All right, folks, that's it from us this week. Make sure you go over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, especially your alcohol themed podcast which is, of course, just the still discussions. We know it. We're the only ones you care about. Just subscribe, leave a review, share us with your friends. We appreciate it. Uh, have a great week. Pour yourself another whiskey. And don't worry, America. We'll be here to drink with you next week.